people that we like helping the most are those that come in from the field because most often they've been neglected or haven't been super well served by public education. Uh, so they go into the field because oftentimes they're disconnected and, and there's so much light and there's so much energy that comes from those guys, typically guys, uh, but, but some of the women too, that, that when you show them what education can look like, it really is a game changer for them. So we see a lot of project managers who remember that learning is fun and already know that learning is fun and can come in and are ready to play games. Uh, but it can be so rewarding when we get the field guys in and this has never really been fun for them before and they realize that it is. It, it could have been decades. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to The Critical Path with Mary and Jason, a podcast about business development, company culture, and loving the place you work just a little bit more. This is episode 69, and we're talking about the sink or swim methodology, promotion without preparation. So this is the, the topic where we're, we're addressing getting thrown into the deep when we get promoted. And many times we just have to flounder and, and paddle as hard as we can. And there's a chance that we might not sink. Yeah, well, and that's, it feels like that's really what happens. And we see this so much with uh, people being promoted into the foreman role, where they get tossed in to the midst of a project, sometimes in the middle of a project, because someone, someone fails out. Mm -hmm. And we take someone who's good in the field and we say, here, go ahead and try. And we toss them into the pool and then Either they swim successfully to the edge and we say, okay, you can do it again, you start tomorrow. Or they get in trouble and we say, I guess you were never really meant to do this at all and their chance is you, over. You weren't made for this. Yeah. And we're, we're really excited, a piece of news we're, we're, we need to talk about is that our Foreman Basic Training Program, it's the eight week uh, intensive training program to help Foreman get ready for the position. We'll be rolling out in October, first thing in October. So mm -hmm. if you have any interest in that, go ahead and check our site out at www.arcadewayfinding.com. And be sure, take a moment right now to like, love, share this, this podcast and go ahead and share it with other people who are lovers of construction. Absolutely. But, but even though we're kind of talking about some of the same stuff that really inspired our form and basic training in mm -hmm. this podcast, we're not talking about form and basic training. Yep. We're talking about how can we make sure to prepare people before we drop them into that swimming pool. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't always happen with the foreman position, uh, but it does happen a lot in that, in that arena, in that neighborhood. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about that. Um, but I think one thing we've been exploring a lot about is the concept of psychological safety and kind of bringing your whole self, being comfortable to share parts of your personality at work and and not necessarily segmenting those things between home and work life. Because if you're, you're hiding things, you're concealing things because you're not comfortable bringing yourself to work, then that can result in a lot of hiding other things that are super important and relevant to work. So we've been spending time with uh, Cabri Lerman Schmidt of Hensel Phelps, and uh, she shared that promotion without preparation is one of the leading indicators of suicide. And construction as an industry, we're, we're number two in terms of the rate of, of suicide in the US, which is kind of mind boggling. And when we, we think about that concept of promotion without preparation, 
it is, it is, that is the definition, that's the experience that most people who work in construction have gone through, whether it's early in their career or through the entirety of their career. That preparation, that promotion without preparation is, is a huge pitfall. That's a make, or, make it or break it situation. So it's important that we, we think about, let's just kind of step out of our own heads for a second and think about you are a form, or you are a field worker, a field hand, and you're gonna be moving into a position where now you're running the show. Now you're basically running a, a $2 million small business responsible for a team of 10, and you've never done this before. What kind of pressures are, are those people looking at? Not to mention you're being promoted to be in charge of people and just yesterday you were one of them. You were working alongside of them. And, and there can be this rift where now there's resentment because you were promoted and they weren't. And now you have to tell them what to do and they you have to make them listen. Yep. Uh, there are a whole nest of, of challenges that come with that. But the, the very human element is that many times this promotion, this opportunity, it, it can mean a lot of big things. We talked with Jason Jones of NWCCA about this, where he said, for a lot of people who promote into the foreman position, this can mean a change of income for them. This can mean yeah, a change of- It's not just a change of income, mm -mm. it's a change of life. It's a change of lifestyle. This can be a, an escape point of that pain point that we talk about mm -hmm. all the time. This can be a way to move. So I remember when you came out and worked in Seattle, and uh, the guy who hired you in, who you had really high opinion of, mm -hmm. and he said, uh, "You, the days of you having to worry about whether or not you can pay your bills. Whether or not you have food. Whether or not you have enough, those days are over now. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, to some extent we've been fortunate that, I mean, it's been largely true. I mean, having your own business is a whole nother ball yeah. of wax. Yeah. But I think that that, that idea that the days of having to have your heart in your throat about whether the power is going to get turned off, mm -hmm. that this can mean an end to that or mm -hmm. or worrying about whether you're going to be able to feed your kids. Yeah. So we're not just talking about the desire for more money, but we're talking about escaping that place mm -hmm. where you don't have enough. And if, if you come from a similar situation that we did from poverty, this can mean kind of that escape from that situation. It can mm -hmm. mean a better outcome for your kids. It can mm -hmm. mean... They can actually go to college. Uh, it can mean home ownership. It can mean so many things. But the idea is that it means different things to every person. And, and I, th I think it's important to talk about because mm -hmm. we get comfortable. You know, some of us get comfortable. And of course, that doesn't mean we have everything and we'd like to have more money. But I can remember saying to you when we were young, I want one day for the thing to, to happen in our lives where there is never a day where I don't have access to $20. Yeah, I should be able to get $20. I want there to be a day to come yeah. where I'm not digging for change in the couch because I need $20. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's important to remember that that place happens and that people live in that place. And and many times the place where you, you depart that situation is promotion into field leadership. Yep. Right? Is, is when you take on that role... Uh, your your life can look very different, and I, I you couple that with the fear of failure, the fear that that you will not be successful at this, because when one of the things that we fear the most as humans is just fear of unknown, and there is so much when you promote without preparation that is unknown to you, mm -hmm. and we should really be thinking about what kind of safety net are we creating for field leaders in those positions. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we, we think about 
that phase of promotion between field labor and, and field leadership. That's one place where we see a huge disconnect, a huge problem in the amount of preparation that we're providing. But the other place where it exists is if you're promoting from field leadership into management. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're moving from, from the field to the office, there are a lot of unknowns there. And, and a lot of levers that you have to pull look very different from those two situations. Well, the field and the office can really be two completely different worlds. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of migrating from one world to another and expected to be able to just kind of figure that out. Mm -hmm. They have a different tool set, like literally they have mm -hmm. different tools. They wear different clothes. They use mm -hmm. different language. Uh, they, they interact with each other differently. The amount mm -hmm. of personal touch is different. All, there's so many differences between those things, and I think that there can be really a culture shock. But culture aside, when we're just kind of talking about the levers and the amount of training that we get to be prepared for that position, I think that that's a place where we as an industry are still nowhere near where we need to be. Absolutely. So my experience in, in going through these transitions, because I started out in the field, I started out in field labor, moved into foreman position, moved into residential project manager, moved into commercial project engineer, moved into APM to PM to owner's rep. I've been through that whole cycle of, of promotion. And in many cases, in most cases, it was promotion without preparation. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's important too, to kind of talk about your reactions to that, because you know, I think too that there is a place where people are like, "Well, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta get in there and figure it out." And that's what that's what someone does who's really, you know, good at the job. You mm -hmm. can just figure it out, right? And I think you know, early in your career, that was you to a T. Mm -hmm. Early in your career in residential construction, it didn't really matter where anybody tossed you. You just kind of looked around and said, "Okay, put on your tool belt, yeah. figured it out." Never really felt a lot of stress about figuring out what was going on around you. I think. And well, then, that's your perception. Well, maybe, maybe <laughs> I didn't feel like, uh, say, going to work for the home builder. I didn't feel like there was a lot of, of was there? Was well, there a but, lot of but, like fear and anxiety there? Sure. Well, so, so I took the job, and I think we've talked about it before in the podcast, that, that I took a siding job with a siding yeah, product that I had true. never seen that. before. <laughs> and it was a super high dollar product, you expensive product. I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't. wrecked it. And I butchered the job. <laughs> And, and I ended up going to work for him and worked hourly to finish the job. Yeah, I guess I was thinking about your progression through his company mm -hmm. from the time that you were just a carpenter mm -hmm. to like when he made you a project manager, nobody gave you any support. And I feel like you were just kind of like, I can, I think I can figure this out. Yeah, but I, I understood the job better than he did. Right. That's... And, and and I was comfortable with that. Right. But it's it's when you're working in the, in the situation where the job and that the level that you're expected to perform at you're not mm -hmm. achieving that and there are people who are there who know it and judge you for it so that's where i was going when i was so rudely interrupted Oof. <laughs> is that uh my what my, podcast is this <laughs> my perception of your early days mm -hmm. was that you, I absolutely remember when you got out over your skis with that siding and you knew you were doing it when you did it. But oh, that yeah. was more of like you rolled the dice because we needed to. We needed money. We needed to live. Yeah, we were in the pain we point. We didn't have $20. Yeah. 
But I think, you know, most of your promotions um, in your early life, I felt that you, you took pretty well in stride and felt like you knew what to do with. Mm-hmm. And then that's why it was such a big deal to me when you got dropped into commercial construction, because suddenly you were terrified. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen you like that before. I had never seen you afraid of failure like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess other than like maybe when you first went away to college, mm-hmm. you were a little afraid to well, fail and, there. And I felt like uh, Lise Crutcher Lewis had a better support structure than, than I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But even still, it's not what it could have been or should be mm-hmm. where we're at in, in the culture today. And I guess that's the point I'm trying to get at is I think often people have been, say, where you were mm-hmm. when you worked in residential, where they got bumped into something they maybe weren't quite ready for but was easily within their kind of comfort zone. And then when they see other people getting, say, dropped into that commercial moment, they're like, oh, you should have took it into stride like I did. Mm-hmm. But realizing that there are there are differences in depth there. Mm-hmm. And just because, you know, at some point you've kind of leveled up and been comfortable with it doesn't make it the same experience. Mm-hmm. Well, and and to get to the next point, it the majority of my career very much was sink or swim. Mm-hmm. You're thrown into the deep and you have to perform. And and what you see happen is that maybe 10% of the people who are thrown in are strong swimmers. They can figure it out. They're creative. They're, they're survivors. Mm-hmm. And they will rise to the top. There's probably a number that is 75 to 80% of people who could swim if if they were shown how they could learn how to swim if somebody taught them how to do it just had a little support but they they drown because they're they don't have that survivor mentality or or they just they're not built to be natural swimmers Mm -hmm. and i think that there's nothing wrong with that because all it would take is someone showing you how to do it and and the right environment to warm up to it and to Mm -hmm. to get comfortable with it someone to show you to teach you how to do this job that is managing a couple million bucks a year, uh, I think it's worth the investment of taking the time to show them how to do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, again, that's kind of the point I was trying to get at is people often think the existence of that 10%, mm-hmm. the idea that there are people who will succeed even if you don't support them, yeah. they use that as kind of the uh, excuse yeah. for letting that 70% drown yeah and and <laughs> you'll also hear well you know we only keep the best people we only mm-hmm. keep the most people just wash out we only keep the top 10 percent mm-hmm. that's why we're so good and i would ask the question are you really that good if you're not capable of of training 75 percent 85 percent of the potential candidates and you're still grumbling about not having enough talent yeah well and that's the piece i see is that we complain about not there not being enough people mm-hmm. and then we let all these people wash out who could be really capable really strong performers for us so i want to be thinking in this podcast about what the current support structure looks like like what do we see out there what are we what are we aware of and i think one one place to start is that there are larger companies, several larger companies in in construction that have an onboarding process in place. Mm -hmm. But even even those more successful companies oftentimes miss the mark Mm -hmm. in in the way that they've designed or or the way that they operate that onboarding training program. Uh, So we see situations where 10, 15 years ago, there was kind of a, a, a champion of this initiative who created this onboarding process and 
their system, their process hasn't been updated in 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we're using this onboarding process for tools and for for mm -hmm. uh, processes that we don't use anymore. Yep. And we, we typically see that that champion has moved on or retired or what have you. Mm -hmm. So no one really even knows how this thing works from an onboarding standpoint. Yep. Uh, so then we can just kind of go through the motions, but we're not necessarily getting any acknowledgement that yes, I understand what I'm supposed to do and this is helpful yep. and I feel prepared. Uh, and it can then turn into kind of this Frankenstein patchwork of onboarding or, or uh, it, can, it can leave tons of cracks where people fall through and they kind of fall through the ice and, and don't make it. Mm -hmm. And I think Absolutely. that even the best intended programs, we really should be keeping our eye on the ball and, and understanding, is it up to date? Mm -hmm. Does it meet the needs of today? Do we need to throw the whole thing out and reimagine it? Um, not necessarily in a, in a cumbersome way, but in a light, agile way that we need to get the support to our people that they need right now. It doesn't need to be perfect, but it needs to be better than what it is that we're doing now. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the bigger companies. And, and you know, that's not to say that there aren't some folks who are doing well, but I think the majority of folks, this is a, a pain point for them. And we see that there are uh, companies that, that don't have any intelligible onboarding programs. So these are the mid-sized, smaller size companies where if you ask them what their onboarding process looks like, they're gonna have a hard time telling you. Well, and usually what it looks like is that, you know, if anything, then they send them out with a crew mm -hmm. that knows what to do. Send them out with a foreman that knows what to do. And then, you know, they get that for a few days and then off they go. Or they'll go into HR and we have an HR training where they have someone interact with them for two days straight. But it doesn't necessarily prepare them for what they need to know mm -hmm. about their job. Well, but I think the important part is I think shadowing is an important well, shadowing part. Shadowing is huge. It's a huge part of, yeah. a, of a successful program. But shadowing isn't necessarily a successful program by itself. Oh, no. So often that's kind of what we see is we say, well, they shadow someone. But that person that they're shadowing is trying to run work mm -hmm. actively, is not necessarily built to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. Just because they're successfully being a foreman or uh, whatever role they're in doesn't mean that they're necessarily a successful teacher or that they have the time and energy to get this person up to speed. So we'll see programs that, that are oftentimes disconnected processes where we have this little bit over here and then we talk to this person and this person. And if you're cooking a dish, what it looks like is you have these scattered ingredients all over the kitchen. Mm -hmm. We don't have a full dish here. There, there's mm -hmm. nothing to like really experience and know whether or not it's working. Is it like trendy bad fusion cuisine? It is, but it's stuff that's not even cooked yet. It's like <laughs> all this partially cooked stuff around the kitchen that like it never comes together. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what we see with with training and and promotion and preparation that we we see all of these separate pieces that never blend together to actually make sure that we have a proper safety net. Mm -hmm. And one of our our favorite quotes is, about our training is I love the feeling of failing in a controlled environment. Your job as, as leaders and managers and owners of, of companies is to create that controlled environment, especially during onboarding, to make sure that, that people feel safe mm -hmm. and they feel comfortable in that onboarding process. Yep. Well, and we manage like we parent, we parent like we manage. It's mm -hmm. another one of our things we say all the time. 
But ultimately, you know, my, my best example for this is if you have ever had a two-year-old child, three-year-old child, chances are you were not on the side of a busy road the very first time you let go of their hand and waited to see if they were going to stay by your side or run out into the road. Who knows? Right? Who you, knows what's going to happen? You probably kind of created some situations mm-hmm. where you could get a feel for how they were going to behave without the risk of them being in the middle of a busy road. Yeah. You're at a park. You're in the backyard. You're you know, at the mall in a situation where you have the control over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in the, in the playground area and you're kind of sitting in front of the doorway, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, in the same way, when we're training people, we need to make sure that we're creating the opportunities for them to take risks where they're not going to break everything the first time they make a mistake. And with all of these disconnected processes, one of the symptoms or or problems that we see is that creating a cohesive process hasn't necessarily been a priority up to this point. Mm -hmm. Nothing bad enough has happened to, to really get us to rethink or, or ask ourselves, are we doing this right or not? Um, and, and we get to the point in this discussion where we're thinking about, okay, well, it's kind of a mess. What do we do about it? Yep. How do we fix this? Where do we go? And I think that the first step, number one, is to recognize that we our, our failure to, to properly manage this process results in all sorts of, of challenging things, all sorts of bad stuff. Mm-hmm. We see huge hits to morale. So our people are not feeling good about the work they're putting out. And then we tend to withhold information and kind of shield what it is that we're doing because we'll be damned if we find out or we, we don't want people to find out the mistakes that we've made. Well, and if I don't feel like I can succeed either way, then the only way I can keep making sure I can like feed my kids mm-hmm. and, and keep my lights on is by making sure nobody finds out that yeah. I'm screwing up. And, and remember, we're in this high pressure situation where we've just been promoted. So we want to take care that we protect that. Yeah. So the other thing that happens, uh, one of the costs is that we see a bottom line cost to our projects, uh, our company, our expenditure, our output, our productivity, all of those cost-related items, we get hit pretty hard mm-hmm. when we don't have a proper onboarding process. Mm-hmm. Every single minute that it takes you to get up to speed, mm-hmm. you're burning money just to, to get properly trained. Yep. We see damage to customer relations where holy cow, uh, our, our customers aren't happy with the work that we're putting out. We're making mistakes. We're losing face. Um, we, and, and then we think about the idea of, well, if this is the way that we run our company and our best source of new recruits are the people that work for us, what are they saying? What are they saying about how we onboard and how we take care? Uh, so it's, it's critical that we recognize and we understand and acknowledge how much this lack of process is really costing us. So when we look at the the time and the money and the goodwill that this costs, I think we often talk about how businesses are sometimes better better at looking at their tools than they are at looking at their people. Mm-hmm. If you had some piece of equipment that was old and not doing well and critical to your work. And I came in and I said, "Look, I can show you by the numbers this piece of equipment, it's easily costing you $250,000 a year. Yeah, and it in the nature of our work, it's not that hard to get there. $250,000 a year this thing is costing you. Uh, and you say, okay, but what's the bad news? What do I gotta pay to fix it? And I say, mm, 10 grand. Mm-hmm. 10 grand and you can fix that machine right. and it won't cost you $250,000 every year. Yeah. And that's gonna be a no-brainer. That's gonna be a decision that anyone would easily make. 
However, when we look at it in the same way with our people, we say not having a training program is costing you time, money, relationships. It's costing so much. Mm-hmm. And compared to that amount that we're losing, it really costs so little to build something that can support those people. Well, and I think part of it is related to the tangible type of people that we are in construction where we're thinking Mm -hmm. in very concrete terms. We can understand the cost related to equipment and production, but we have a really hard time getting our heads around the concept that that investing in training actually shows a return, Mm -hmm. right? It shows a return and investment just for for breaching that that, uh, preparation ramp, right? Uh, so first is recognize and, and understand the total cost of what it is that, that we're, we're absorbing here. And the second is if you recognize that, that this is not something that you're built to do, reach out to resources, reach out to people who are in the business of creating process. So many times people sit across the table from us and they say, I just, I, I guess maybe it's possible that people could do better for me if they had training or support. But I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to train people or support people. And the good news is you don't have to know how to do that. There are people who are good at operating the business, at, at managing a trade, at, at managing a piece of work. But there are a lot of people who, if you left them in a room, they're never going to come up with a rock-solid process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of great resources out there uh, to provide that support in creating process and training mm-hmm. to that process. A carpenter is not necessarily a plumber, mm-hmm. and a plumber is not necessarily a carpenter. And you don't expect that either one of them is less for but, not being able to do the other job. But that's tangible. We understand that. Right. But I think in the same <laughs> way, the idea that you can be really great at, at having your business and running and owning your business mm-hmm. and not necessarily be really great at creating training programs. Yep. And that's no loss to you. You just mm-hmm. need to be able to reach out to someone who is good at that. Yep. And while we're in that process of reaching out, it's important that we incorporate focused training for that new role for a dedicated period of time. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the amount of time that it takes to learn how to do a job, mm-hmm. it takes on average two years from start to the point where it becomes muscle memory and, mm-hmm. and you can show up and do the work and you don't really have to think too hard about how to do that job. Yep. You can do it faster, you can do it slower, but I guarantee you learning that job comes much, much faster than that if you have a solid training program in mm-hmm. place. Absolutely. So if you think about, uh, if, if I'm a third grade science teacher and I'm, I'm teaching science to little kids, and then tomorrow I step in and I'm teaching college level astrophysics, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna have a good transition going from third grade to astrophysics. And tell you the truth, I'm not gonna have a good time going the other direction either. It's true, it would actually, in some ways, if you were a capable astrophysicist who had been teaching third grade science, mm-hmm. it would still be hard for you to teach astrophysics it might be harder for you to go from teaching college astrophysics to teaching third grader science. So it's important that we recognize that these are different toolboxes. So if we're going from the field to, to field leadership, those are totally different tool sets. Mm-hmm. And if we're going from field leadership to office, totally different toolboxes. Different worlds. Right. So our training should be focused on getting those people up to speed mm-hmm. with, with learning those new tools. This yep. is new stuff that maybe they've never seen before. Yep. Absolutely. So first recognize, second reach out. The third part is test drive new initiatives. So we can get wrapped around the axle 
we do this to ourselves all the time where we think we have to take the time to create this perfect program. It needs to answer all of the questions and check all the boxes. It needs to be rock solid on day one. That almost never works out. Yep. And, and I would go as far as to say that never works out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of complete the whole project approach before we even see if it starts uh, is, is kind of old thinking. And, and it's how most of these initiatives die on the vine. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about the amount of energy and effort it takes to start and complete an initiative like this, by the time you get to the end, you're asking yourself, why did we even start this in the first place? Not to mention, if you build the whole thing in a vacuum, then it's likelier to not be as good a thing that you've built, right? Because if you're building, testing, building, testing, you know, I remember one of the ways that our training sessions or in our early days got mm-hmm. the strongest was when a company had us come in and run the same session with everybody at the company. Mm-hmm. And there were too many people at the company to be in one session. So what it meant is we did say Outlook like four times in a row, mm-hmm. just did it, did it again, came back the next day, did it, did it again. It was like Groundhog Day. And it was, but we were getting feedback and then applying it to the afternoon mm-hmm. session and then getting feedback and then a, going to work that or going home that night, going to work that yeah. night and rebuilding the PowerPoint. So, you know, the idea here is if you're training, getting feedback, training, getting feedback, as opposed to trying to build this whole thing in some mm-hmm. kind of a vacuum where you don't even know how people are responding to it. So everybody should know that we're big space nerds and, and science nerds. Imagine if SpaceX built their first ship to Mars and filled it with passengers before they had ever <laughs> tested it. Yep. Before they, you know, did any practice launches, before they did any, you know, uh, landings, before they did any of that, they just kind of packed everybody up and said, "Okay, here we go." Just shot them out into space. So, it's important that that in trying to to create this this onboarding or transition program that we create a small group, a test group to to workshop this with as we go through the motions of of getting it off the ground. So we want to pay close attention to how it's going. We want to have regular feedback with all of the key people involved because we're, we all have to be active participants in this process. So we want to make sure that, that in this process, we incorporate uh, one-on-one mentoring. One-on-one mentoring has to be a, a critical piece to getting these people onboarded, learning what that new role looks like. And this is not just time that they are shadowing, Mm -hmm. but time that that mentor has dedicated to be able to talk to them and work through things with them. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to the idea of failing in a controlled environment, we need to, with that mentorship, we need to create a safe space between those two people so that that when there are fears, when there are unknowns, when there are questions, the rapport and the relationship is such that there's no barrier to sharing that question. So we could spend a whole episode talking about building a mentoring program because Mm -hmm. that is a whole nother conversation. But here I would just kind of add the piece that is, uh, it's important that we don't just assign those mentors. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to make the space and build the initiative to let people connect to other people themselves. Mm-hmm. Because if I take you and I say, here, this is your mentor. This is a little like, again, in parenting, if you take a kid at the playground and you say, now you and Billy are friends. <laughs> Here's your friend. This is your friend, Billy. Right. And when they're two, that actually works. Yep. That's who their friends are. It's who their parents stuck them next to. But pretty quickly, they develop their own personalities and their own preferences for people and mentoring is the same. 
Yeah. So if, if someone is going to be a miserable mentor, just get them out of that program and, and keep them outside of the box. Well, but I think. But if there are, are mentors who are passionate about it. But you could be a passionate, great mentor for mm-hmm. one person mm-hmm. and not a great mentor for another. Sure. Oh, fit, you know? fit is, is 100% I know important. a guy from your career who was an incredible mentor, mm-hmm. an incredible, dynamic, very interesting person, and another guy that you knew who worked closely with that guy that we thought very highly of that did not feel that way. Mm-hmm. And that would have been a bad mentoring relationship, mm-hmm. right? It was a great mentor sure. for you. It was not a great mentor for this other person. Yeah. So I guess that's why I'm saying it's not just don't let bad mentors in the door. Mm-hmm. It's you need to create this space for people to connect and kind of, it, it almost looks more like a mixer and less like an assignment. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And and then the last piece of creating a successful onboarding training program is you want to create this, this small process, this kind of test run, and you want to have some sort of time commitment attached to it. So when you start the, the program, it could be 30 days, it could be 90 days. Make sure that we create that, that time requirement, that commitment that we're all bound to and make sure that we actually run that out. Make sure that we actually commit and and complete that process through that full cycle. Because what tends to happen is we'll get bored, we'll get frustrated, uh, we'll we'll get complacent, and we kind of wander away from it. But we all need to really tie together and, and commit that we're in this thing and we're gonna invest this time because it's important and we're gonna get to the end of it and then we're gonna reflect and figure out how did it go? Uh, how, what went well? What didn't go well? How can we improve it for the next run? Yep, absolutely. Better is good. Better is good. What else? You can find us. You can find us at www.rkwayfinding.com. You can find the podcast at www.thecriticalpathpodcast.com as well as on whatever podcast network you find your podcast. If you or someone that you care about is interested in participating in our forum and basic training program, check it out on our website. Space is super limited because of COVID sizes. Yep, we are we are doing it in person, but we have lots of good good guidelines to make sure we stay safe and socially distanced and all that good stuff. But it means that we have to run a pretty small program in order to keep everybody safe. Yeah, if you want to ensure your people are swimming and not sinking, check Absolutely. it out. Check it out. Watch for it. I don't know. We were pretty serious this time. Pretty hardcore. Like any jetpack or anything. But I guess I did get to do the alien episode a little while ago, so I gotta <laughs> let that like just kind of keep per- it going. Percolate for a, while. a little bit. Well, yeah. better is good. Is good. Better is good. Is good. Is good. <laughs> is that a good jetpack? Is that it what is. You're better at? is good. Is good. I guess it is. I, I mean, I feel like the jetpack is usually more like irreverent and fun. It is. It's kind of nerdy. Like, yeah. It's. I need that on a regular basis, or else I kind of just get, you know, bad. <laughs> bored. I was gonna say bored. Uh, all right. <laughs> it's too late for you to be podcasting. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>